everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of December 17th, 2020. This is Sound Week at No Film School. I am Charles Hain, tech writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. We're going to be talking about all of the new shows Disney has announced. We're going to be talking about sound and why it's so important to filmmaking. We're going to be talking about, in tech news, some more anamorphics that cover full frame, which is a super exciting universe. We've got all that and one of my favorite Ask No Film Schools of all time this week on the No Film School podcast. Our first story this week is that Disney announced an absolute glut of new projects coming to Disney+. Plus or wherever else they might put things. Disney Plus, as we all know, is a massive streaming service platform that is growing constantly, that has tons of subs. But the Walt Disney Company, as we also know, is just a massive player in the industry, growing all the time. And this was called Investor Day, which I already think is a fascinating shift. Uh, There are no, instead of a sweeps, uh, this is their way of letting everybody get excited about their content. And it's for investors. Their stocks went through the roof, hit an all-time high during this crazy time when people are like stealing food to survive. So it's weird because <laughs> I feel like we're kind of living through the 20s and the 30s at the same time these days. Uh, Disney went crazy because they just announced a nonstop lineup of TV shows and movies, many of which are sequels or you know iterations or offshoots from new Star Wars shows about side characters that you probably never heard of, even if you grew up loving Star Wars, to new Marvel shows. Just the images of all the logos alone overwhelmed me. I saw on social media, people just took right off of their investor day slide, which kind of feels like an Apple announcement and and very much inspired by that. There was a lot of, but wait, there's more. There were so many strange things buried within this. It's almost hard for me to believe. And I think I told our own Jason Hellerman, the writer at No Film School, as it was happening, I don't really think they're going to end up producing all of this content. And he countered, of course they are. But I just remember a time when Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, said there will be a new Disney movie or a new Star Wars movie, I'm sorry, released every single year. Well, that lasted like two years, I think, before they saw it not working and decided to scrap that plan. So I am not convinced that every single one of these shows is going to end up on Disney Plus or in theaters or wherever people are going to get things. For example, a live action hybrid Chip and Dale directed by Akiva Schaefer from Lonely Island, starring Mulaney and Andy Samberg. And the tweet of this from Walt Disney Studios, you would have to check to make sure it was a verified real account and not a joke because it's so weird. There was also another like super weird one that popped up was the movie Lightyear. And this to me feels like an Abbott and Costello routine. It's about Buzz Lightyear, but not the character, the toy, from the Toy Story movies, as Chris Evans, who plays Lightyear in this movie, tweeted, it's about the real man that Buzz Lightyear is based on, which threw everybody into some confusion because how is this? So the toy is based on a real man, but not a real, real man, a fake real man in the universe of Toy Story. And this is the movie about the fake real man that the fake toy is based on 
in Toy Story, it's it's a little odd. It feels like we're at the point where IP is becoming just an endless feedback loop when I think about that for too long. But I the whole thing is just is just a crazy this is the direction of entertainment. I think, you know, again, I talked to Darren James, who's also on our team, our tech writer at No Film School, about how there was a time when just one Star Wars show, as Lucas talked about, like in the 90s, seemed like impossible. Where is it going to live? How are they going to produce it? Now there's 30. And <laughs> it's just like, and because of the the tech behind the Mandalorian, it seems completely plausible. And, and because of streaming platforms, plausible to produce it plausible for it to be seen and they have the subs so they're making money everything about this is such a shift in the industry so i'm gonna argue against you on two fronts because it's fun to do (laughs) yeah Uh, this is a pincher attack coming in on one end i'm gonna say nothing new about this right like even back in the flintstones days there was the flintstones and then they had that alien come down with the hope of making an alien show like this is nothing new (laughs) In certain arenas, especially the animated arena, right? Like if you think about it, like Hanna-Barbera was constantly doing this with like characters and then they get their own show and then they get their own show and we see it in other animation studios. So what's interesting to me is not that this is new, it's that it's taking a model from one universe and it's bringing it over to this other universe of live action. It's because it was so much easier to do that in animation back in the day. Everybody was sitting in the studio. You were outsourcing a lot of the labor or the voices, which were the expensive part, um, worked for much less time, that it became these big extended universes, Disney and Hanna-Barbera. Um, and I'm sure there's a third one I'm forgetting that the people are very offended, I've forgotten. And so <laughs> they're bringing that model to live action and they're using the technology of things like the Mandalorian to enable that to happen. Um, and as a side note, there is a Mandotanium now um, that is oh, like an indie version. Yeah, it happened. They're, they're not calling it the Mandatanium because they don't want to pay me licensing fees because I copyright the name, but there is a low budget version of the Mandalorian set that is available for production already, which is super cool. However, back Where? to the point, it's in LA. Yeah. So uh, back to the actual point, though, the exciting thing is I'm going to say this is all really cool to me. I mean, look, I'm looking at this list. First off, this list was big enough news that my wife, who doesn't work in entertainment and despite being married to me, doesn't really like she liked movies and television, but she doesn't really care about entertainment news. It's not really her thing in life she's much more interested in other stuff like real things yeah like real things uh you know she's a historic preservationist like she's interested in old buildings like she's not interested in you know regardless the funny thing about this to me it's like even she heard about this news and she came to me and she was like oh taika watiti is getting a star wars show like which is like such a it's such a normal thing to talk about in LA because everyone only talks about entertainment but to talk about this with like my new yorker wife was like a very like Oh, this news really crossed out of our gulch everywhere else. Oh, yeah. My sister is an attorney in uh, Tennessee, in Nashville. And she was like, wait, there's going to be an Ahsoka series? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Normal people were talking about this. I mean, look, you look at this list and there's definitely some reaches. Like, is Marvel really going to do Moon Knight? I mean, like, I read Moon Knight as a kid. That that It is an interesting comic. But I don't know that Moon Knight... But then again, I didn't know that Guardians of the Galaxy was going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, so maybe they will find an angle on Moon Knight that makes Moon Knight interesting. But here's the thing I like about this, is that, like, to a certain extent, there's going to be a lot of chaos in this. There's going to be a lot of, we're not going to be able to, you know, when you're making 
seven movies a year, the executive team can really sit on those seven movies a year. When you're making 50 television shows a year, (laughs) there's going to be more room just to get weird in order to not be like every other show. You're like, oh, well, we can't do this plot because this show used it. We can't do this plot. So this show used it. So what if it turns out this person can turn inside out or whatever? That's the bad version of it. But there's a little bit of freedom that's going to come from the throw the spaghetti at the wall approach, which is clearly what Disney's trying here. It's going to open up the pool of people who get to work on stories on this level. Patty Jenkins yes. is going to direct a Star Wars movie, which is going to be great because Patty Jenkins is awesome. And I'm excited to see what she does in the Star Wars universe. And, you know, that wasn't happening when it was a movie every three years and it's J.J. Abrams and then it's someone else and then it's J.J. Abrams again. I mean, I really like Ryan Johnson and I quite like Ryan Johnson's movie, but like it's nice to have even a bigger palette of people getting a crack at that mythos and finding avenues and angles within it. I agree with your points, actually. I don't, I, there aren't, they aren't really running contrary to my general thesis. I do think it's a good thing. I do think it opens up opportunity. I think that the model that this has created allows for niche programming or content that otherwise couldn't survive because the model used to be, well, you got to hit every corner, but now you can create a Star Wars show that's really just for kids, as well as a Star Wars show that's really just for like middle-aged dudes. You don't have to create a Star Wars that covers all those things that doesn't work. Plus, you can make a Star Wars that's not just for white people, like which which we've seen. But like that's that's great. Like that's a, and not by white people. Like the, the the model is changing, and it's and it's great. Um, there's also ways in which it's it's strange and silly. You made an amazing point about Hanna Barbera. I recall those Hanna-Barbera universe crossovers where it was like every crazy character was like racing. <laughs> I don't remember what it was called. But like, wasn't there one where they were all racing suddenly in cars? Oh, I, yeah. I think that what's what's great about what – and there's the joke that Patton Oswalt did like a joke where he was talking about all the ways Marvel and Disney would cross over one day and it was, it was pandemonium. But I think that what is at the core of that is it was animation. And you pointed out how that business model worked. It's basically animation now. That's what's happened is the the line between live action and animation has gotten more and more blurry to the point where that's essentially why they can do it. Because sometimes you'll watch The Mandalorian if you watch it and you'll realize that there are very few human faces, which I think is is funny and interesting. But... If, if there's less human faces and bodies, then it's easier to animate the action because you don't have to get all that stuff right, which actually nowadays is easier to get right. But if it's just an Iron Man type suit flying with a little creature fighting other suited troopers <laughs> and spaceships, doesn't it sort of just become animation? And the look is, it's so easy to get the look down that I think, that's why they can do this. I mean, the Mandalorian tech has opened up the possibility to do, I mean, all the tech, but, you know, George Lucas's ideas of what you could do in 1999 with Star Wars was still, you know, they were still shooting it on film. They had to mocap and then animate Jar Jar Binks and he didn't look great besides whatever else you're going to say about him. And now it's so easy compared to that. I mean, we're 20 years later, but still it's amazing how easy it is to do all of this. But the interesting corollary to that 
is that the thing we still can't do is digital celebrities, even though there is that one digital celebrity who just signed with creative artists who she's entirely fabricated and she's a musician and a model. Aside from that creepy thing, <laughs> the thing that we thought might happen, I remember writing a paper about this in the summer of 2002 in a digital media class about like, eventually celebrities are going to be entirely synthetic because then the studios get to control them. But we're still not there. Like, even when we're talking about this, we're talking about, ooh, Taika Waititi is going to be doing a show and we'll presumably have a have a part in the show because we all love Taika Waititi being the director and one of the stars. It's really enjoyable. And Chris Evans is going to be um, the real Buzz Lightyear. And like... We, the thing they can't digitally create is synthetic actors, which is why the animation model works because yes. you need them for less time, right? Like if you're doing a two hour Iron Man thing and Iron Man never takes off his helmet, can right. you afford to get, <laughs> you can probably get Robert Downey Jr. to do two days of voice work or three days as opposed to a feature film where you need him for nine months because everything gets dictated by star schedules. That is the driving yes. force of all of these things. I'm going to keep crediting Lucas for being forward thinking in his own weird ways because the joke used to be that he would replace all the actors if he could. But in his his legacy has been that they are, I think we're witnessing the crossover. Not just because, you know, a Spider-Man can be a lot of different actors. And even as Spider-Verse showed us, it can be a lot of different Spider-Men. And I think the next Spider-Man movie, which is like the third in the second series of three or whatever it is, they're going to bring back all the Spider-Men of yore to be in it. I think what we're starting to see, and again, most of the time in the action, Spider-Man is, is a cartoon for all intents and purposes. Um, Iron Man, most of the time in the action, is a cartoon, except for the close-ups inside when you see RDJ or you hear his voice. Mandalorian is played by Pedro Pascal, who's a great actor, but I think you see his face a couple times, and I think for most of season one, he wasn't even in the suit. And of course, there is a celebrity now attached to all of this who's synthetic, which is the Baby Yoda character, who is selling merch and beloved by all who watch, and he's a He's not, I don't know what his asking price is, but I'm sure it's a lot lower than Robert Downey Jr. So I think what's happening is we're seeing this, like we're at the inflection point and we're seeing where it's starting to tilt. And I'm not saying that they will never need that celebrity element because they will, because what it is, is it's, it's branding. It's like saying, let's be honest, you don't need Chris Evans's voice to make Lightyear. You just don't. But his name helps. By saying Chris Evans is in it, there's a little bit of juice behind that. So a lot of guys could do the voice, right? <laughs> and probably do fine. But you're getting him not even for his face or his physical performance, for his vocal performance, for his name. And I think we're going to start to see that. And I think we're going to start to see more and more characters that don't require one individual star. That's my prediction. I think that's a good prediction. I think that is likely. Disney wrapped. So up next, we need to talk about the fact that it is sound week on no film school. So what is exciting about sound? First off, it is half. Speaking of George Lucas, there's the famous George Lucas quote that sound is half the picture. It is half of your movie is sound. And it is, you know, we're only giving it one week out of 52. Although we don't do a lot of other, there's not a lot of other themed weeks at no film school that I well, can yeah, think I mean, of. On the, on the other, right. On the other hand, we haven't really been doing this. So we're doing... We're doing Sound Week with our partner, Road this week. We focus an awful lot on picture and imagery in the no film school world, but in the filmmaking world in general. 
But sound is half of the way you tell the story. And I will say that it is one of the biggest deciders between a amazing work and a, and a terrible work is the sound design. And it is really one of those things that, you know, if you're a beginning filmmaker and you're thinking like, what are the things I can do to really elevate my productions, learn to master your own sound design, really learn what it takes to create a good soundscape. Um, and I think you're off to the races. It's amazing the dramatic difference that uh, you can make first off by recording clean audio on the day, but also in building a really elaborate soundscape in post-production. And I mean, one of the most exciting things for me in the last couple of years is the really feature-rich tool set in Resolve Fairlight, which is free. Um, you know, Pro Tools is wonderful and affordable, but it was always another subscription you had to talk people into. And now with Fairlight, even if you're editing in Premiere or Media Composer, if you're going to resolve for color, you can go in and start manipulating the soundtrack yourself. And on projects where you can't afford to work with a sound designer, you can start really getting a handle on the power of what's available when you dive into sound design, because it is a huge part of your storytelling palette. I mean, if you haven't done this, everybody should like take a scene from a movie you love, strip it of its soundtrack and watch it and you'll see how dead it feels and then try and rebuild the soundtrack yourself. And you'll see how much power is created in the sound design and frankly, how much production value like your work instantly looks more expensive with beautiful sound design. So in that note, I wanted to give a shout out to a movie called The Conversation. If you haven't seen The Conversation, it is a movie by Francis Ford Coppola that is clearly written in response to Coppola learning about sound design in his filmmaking process. Like it is one of those things, you know, it is about a sort of uh, private detective, uh, sort of like a sonic detective played by Gene Hackman in one of his great roles, um, listening in on a conversation between people and sort of losing his mind. Uh, it's, it's sort of a great 70s paranoid thriller, but it's really about like sound and what we hear. And it's one of those things that I'm like, at some point in every filmmaker's process, you really go deep on sound because it's such a huge part of how we tell a story. And it, I think it's very clear that that process at some point in his career, Coppola did it and then wrote this thing in response to the things you learn as you start to dive into the sound process. Such a great movie. It is like probably the ultimate sound movie. We, we were fortunate enough to have Walter Murch on the podcast to interview him. And we talked about that movie, which he did the sound on. He is kind of like a sound guru. And uh, that was a while ago. It was the, I think it was called cinematic legend, Walter Murch on editing and sound design. If you want to find the post, on nofilmschool.com or find that episode where he talks about sound in general. There's no question that sound is what separates the amateurs from everyone else very quickly in any like submission process, review process. Like if you have crummy sound, then people will immediately discount whatever it is. If you have, I don't want to say crummy, but sort of like different imagery. If you're pick, you can do almost anything with your image quality. You have a lot of latitude, right? But with sound, if it's not high quality, people are just not going to give you the time of day. So that's one of those things where focusing all your energy, I think for the novice, for the newcomer, in the imagery, in the camera, in the lighting is just, and nothing in sound, you're going to pay for it in terms of people not being willing to, to go with you on your journey. The other thing you said is that stripped of sound there's this thing i think you probably experienced it at usc in in film school they'll often take one of the most famous movies 
They'll pull the sound out. They'll show you what it looks like with production sound, just the recording on set. And it's usually just unrecognizably bad because (laughs) what is recorded on set is never what you end up hearing. And that's another way in which you can separate the pros from the amateurs in the world of content creation, which it gets a little tricky now because people are, you know, webcasting and vlogging and doing things where they just got their onboard mic and, you know, it's making them money on YouTube. But in terms of making a movie or something that feels cinematic, you have to have good sound and you have to do post sound work. You have to do sound design. Um, I'm really excited because we have also this week an interview I did with sound designer Mark Mangini, who's won Oscars, or he's won one Oscar at least. He did the sound on Mad Max Fury Road. He's just an amazing talent, and he's been doing this since since before I was born. He actually started on Hanna-Barbera cartoons, amazingly. So listen to that. It's great. But I want to highlight something that I don't know that people think about when they think about great sound, which is Robert Altman. He actually innovated a lot of sound recording technique, particularly with overlapping dialogue and the way he recorded dialogue tracks to allow for improvisation on set. And it was sort of his trademark and movies that really highlight it. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, which is a great Western and I love Westerns, but also Nashville, of course, also loved for the soundtrack. But these are movies where he allowed sound to exist in almost more of a real world and less of a traditionally cinematic world he created a feeling of an of an of a surrounding experience i think the first one was mash which was his first big movie but because he was recording multiple tracks at once and letting them sort of exist on the same audio plane and i'm not a sound expert but i think it created a new experience that was different for moviegoers and felt more natural and more akin to the improvisational nature of conversation. Rewatch those and re-listen to them and kind of feel the, the difference and think about how that innovation or innovations like that can go so far just from an audio standpoint. Yeah, I need to go back through a lot of the Altman. So that is a good note. I will be digging back into some Robert Altman. All right, so this week in Tech News... Uh, we're not going to do a sound tech news. Uh, we're going <laughs> to instead do a picture tech news because we can do what we want. This week in tech news, <laughs> Zelmus Anamorphics have released three more full-frame anamorphic prime lenses. Now, these lenses are $11,000 a piece, so most of you aren't going to be buying them. And if you're going to be buying them and not using them, you can loan them to me. But mostly they'll be bought by rental houses and then rented out for productions. What's fun about these is we're now entering sort of, you know, a crazy era of affordable anamorphics. These are not that much more expensive than the Atlas anamorphics. Um, so we now have two competing companies making anamorphics in this price range. Once you go up to like twenty twenty five thousand dollars a lens, you start seeing a whole lot more competition. But in the like sub fifteen thousand dollars a lens space in anamorphic glass, there haven't been a lot of options, and it's really exciting to see competition in this space. Uh, it's also exciting to see the, these competitors focusing on covering full frame sensors. Uh, a lot of sort of the vintage anamorphics everybody love were designed for 35 millimeter. And so they were designed for super 35 sensor, or actually it wouldn't have been super 35. It would have been four, three Academy 35 coverage, which is a smaller image circle. So as we move to these full frame sensors, 
uh, you you wouldn't be able to cover the whole sensor. Not a big deal on red. You can always shoot cropped, but you want full frame coverage if you can get it. And it's particularly exciting that we're starting to see more modern anamorphics come out designed with full frame coverage. These Zelmus anamorphics in particular are based on the uh, Panavision Gottschalk design um, from back in the, uh, from 54. And, uh, but you know, they've got modern coatings and modern testing and they're designed to be ultra lightweight, very compact. Some of them are pretty fast. Uh, one of them is even a 1.6. I think the 60 millimeter opens that wide. Now, I haven't tested them yet. I have shot super high-speed anamorphics before. In the 70s, Panavision made some anamorphics that opened to 1.4, and I shot those a couple of years ago on a 35-millimeter project, and I will say they got really soft when you opened beyond a 2. Um, so if these are similar designs, even if they open beyond a 2, you might not want to shoot them beyond a 2, although I haven't tested these yet. These are new coatings, and there's some new innovations in the design, so it's entirely possible they will hold up. But anytime I hear about anamorphics beyond a two, I always I always assume I'm only going to be able to shoot them at a two. Uh, anything beyond that, the softness is usually kind of impressive. Um, but we'll see. Uh, there's a music video on their Instagram that was shot in these lenses that is really gorgeous, and they've they've done a lot of product videos. Interestingly, Zelmus, uh, seven year old company, all they do is anamorphics. That's their thing. They are not a. A lot of times you see companies move into this space that originally were like doing optical design for medical imaging or something and then move in here. Zelmus is a, we just want to make anamorphic lenses thing, which is super cool. It's also interesting they've named this lineup Apollo after sort of the US Apollo missions. Um, mm, but it appears cool. to be, it is cool. And they've riffed on the Apollo coloring, their white lenses with red and black markings, which is sort of an Apollo astronauty theme. But interestingly, they appear to be a Russian company, which like, ha. Huh. <laughs> respect respect for being like we're gonna name it apollo anyway because apollo should be an inspiration for the world over let's forget that there was a cold war going on um so i like i, I respect they they look really interesting i can't wait to have a project that motivates me to try and rent them i haven't even shot the atlas lenses yet but a couple of people i know have shot them and have had really good experiences so you know what's so funny about it is that i mean as everyone listening knows i'm not really a tech guy i'm not a gearhead but I appreciate it as, you know, the tools of the trade. And when I, you know, as editor in chief at No Film School, I see everything that, that comes up and uh, as it's a draft. And then as we publish it, of course, I review it. And I saw these and I was so struck by the image of them because they look so cool that it stayed with me because sometimes a simple design thing like changing that and making they look like astronaut lenses. And they have that Apollo font and there's something about it. It's really striking. And in a world of lenses that kind of fall into the same visual design category, when I saw these, I was like, ooh, those look cool. Like I want to, like, that's a cool toy. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think there's some, there's a lot more to be said for that in a crowded marketplace. We're in a creative market. Like whenever someone like gives me a business card that looks shitty, I just assume they're a shitty filmmaker. Like, mm. You know what I mean? Like you presentation is part of what we do and yeah. we work in a visual medium. So like, yeah, if I see actually like lenses, there's a, there's, there's a lens company that won't be named. That's not Apollo. Cause I think that, I mean, that's not Atlas cause I actually like their logo, but there's a lens company with like a ridiculously cheesy logo. And like, I don't really hold it against them, but I kind of think the logo is pretty bad. And like, it makes me wonder if like about their taste in terms of lens design. It's a funny thing because it cascades from there, right? I used to joke with with my creative partner that the like back in the mini DV days, like 
the the size of the camera would help everybody on set feel like the thing was more legit. Like if you're shooting on something that looks like a camcorder, you're going to have a, like an actor who's like, what is, you know, what are you, sh-? you know, if you had something that looked big, even if the medium is exactly the same, if it looked like a big real camera, like the old XL1 did, that there was something to that because people were like, oh, it's like a big camera. It's like a real one. I think that there's something about having lenses that look cool and and almost nostalgic in a sense sci-fi like i think there's something to the impression obviously your camera crew isn't going to be wowed because they know what the deal is like they know what the lens does but you know it's just there's always something to how you present things in like you said a digital visual medium but also like a narrative medium because there's a narrative behind apollo and that font whether you're conscious of it or not you experience the narrative when you look at those. I agree. So, you know, when you're making cool products for the film industry, also make them look good. And actually, this makes me think I should also reach out to that company whose lint, whose logo I don't like and see if I can't review their lenses someday just to see if they're actually nice looking lenses because um, maybe I'm being too harsh. And maybe their logo is cool and I just don't appreciate it. Also possible. You know, it's funny. I don't know which one you're talking about, but as I'm as I'm reading about these lenses and looking on the No Film School website, I see other stories about the Cook lenses, and I've always loved the Cook logo. I think that's cool. It has a little nostalgia. And there's oh yeah, it's not one of the big companies. Like Cook's logo is beautiful. Uh, I like Zine's logo. I like Zeiss's logo. The Airy Signature logo is quite beautiful. So it's it's certainly not any of the major players. All righty. And then moving on, I've got to lift up my laptop to read this. We have an Ask No Film School that I really enjoyed. Are boat settings too expensive and off-putting to producers? I'm working on my first feature, and the first half would be set on a shrimp boat. My gut feeling is telling me, no, I shouldn't do that because of the cost. So my question is, are producers going to see this and pass on it? Um, Should I set the story somewhere else? My gut keeps telling me to think of the budget especially nowadays. So I, I really wanted to answer this question because I loved it. And the answer is make the movie cool and you can afford to work on a shrimp boat. Yes, working on boats are notoriously a nightmare. Uh, the reason why is because they're always bobbing around on the water and that can make it hard to keep your shots level and hard to coordinate. And then if waves come in and tide and there's a billion variables that make things more difficult on a boat. However, everything you can do in a movie that is cool is harder than things that are not cool. Except for kids. Kids are not cool. (laughs) Kids are not cool. The easiest thing you could do is you could write a roommate movie, right? I have a buddy who did a roommate web series, and he said the worst part of it was whenever you'd go to, like, festivals or financing markets, everybody would be like, oh, another roommate show. Oh, another roommate show. Because, like, what's the easiest thing you can do? Oh, we've got an apartment. We already pay rent for it. We can shoot in here. We'll have roommates. They'll have zany adventures. Another roommate show. Now, roommate shows can be great. It's Always Sunny is Philadelphia. I think the initial pilot thing, they lived together. Um, and that pilot thing got them FX and the longest running show on television. So like- I you know, know a lot of people who had success starting with the roommate show. It, yeah. it, is a, it is an easy way to get started. It can be done. But I don't know anybody who's gotten success in it in the last 10 years. Everybody I know who turned it into something, it was more than 15 years ago. Because it is yeah. such an easy thing to do now. But like, yeah. you have an idea for a character on a shrimp boat. Run with it. Do it. Let let other people talk you out of stuff, right? Like if if your if your whole story is good enough and the characters are compelling enough, a producer's way more likely to read it and be like, oh my God, this gripped me. I couldn't wait to get to the ending. I needed to know who the killer was or whatever horror trope you're going for. 
but could we move it off of a shrimp boat? Like that's more likely to be a thing, but let them do that to you. If, if the story works, if the script is good, if people want to do it, they let them figure out the ways to, to scale it back down to earth. Also, I've worked on indie projects in all sorts of crazy places. And depending upon what you want to do, I mean, we had a thesis film at the film school where I shoot that was all on a boat. And we were like, there's no way you're going to be able to do this. It's a thesis film working on a boat's a nightmare. And they came to us with a very elaborate presentation where they were like, here's how it's going to work. 90% it's going to be tied off at the shore and we're just going to be shooting out towards the water and we'll be able to do dolly shots from the shore and we'll be able to like keep the boat steady, rigged to the shore. And then we're going to do like four shots out on the open water where we like circle the boat to remind you that it's a boat. And we were like, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds like a very doable plan. And they pulled it off and it's one of the best thesis films we've ever had at the school. Um, so you know, it, it will involve some logistical challenges, but like, I want to see a horror movie on a shrimp boat. Like, that sounds great. Like if, if it's <laughs> down, it's all, like, you know, like I, 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 if you have a thing, like so much of the film industry is going to try and talk you off cliffs. But the fun thing about writing the script is the script, you get to just make it as awesome as it could possibly be. And then later people will have to be like, you know, later on you'll find a producer and the producer will be like, Hey, I, I know you wrote it on a shrimp boat, but I actually own a deep water fishing boat. So could we just put it on the deep water fishing boat instead? And then you'll be like, hooray. Yeah, I can make him a deep water fishing guide instead of a shrimper. You can totally do that. But like, let that happen later. Cause also who knows what resources the producer that you land with might have your producer might yeah. have a family history in the shrimping industry and might own a fleet of shrimp boats. You might get it financed by someone who owns a shrimp boat. So make the coolest you can possibly make. Unless, yeah. I, I think it's a good answer. I, I always want to say, I, I apologize when the answers are sort of like write the best possible script, but unfortunately that often is the answer. And the more I learn, the more people I talk to in the industry, the more I realize why. And one reason is, I think that this question kind of points us towards this. For a producer to get excited about your indie project and to want to work on it, they're going to have to commit years of their life. They might end up committing more time than you do. In fact, if all goes well, they will. Because a producer lives with the project for longer than a writer-director, frankly, in, in many instances. So they're going to have to love this thing and they're going to have to want to carry it to term, so to speak, and beyond. And for that to happen, the obstacle from the producer's mindset, the obstacle of the shrimp boat is small compared to the obstacle of how much do I love this thing? And I know it's hard to weigh those two things against each other, but when you're creating it, you really have to create the best, most dynamic thing possible. And if that means something crazy and expensive happens, then you have, I think, you have to include it for now. Because like Charles says, it's always negotiable. But then again, maybe later you find out it's not. Like just to counterpoint, maybe some producer says, I want to do this, but it has to be on a, you know, a deep sea fishing boat. But at that point, you've realized that the story only works for you on a shrimp boat. Well, then you have a tough call to make. But that aside you got to write the most compelling, strongest script you possibly can. And whatever that means is what you have to do, because that's going to be what makes people come or not come. And if 
you've made it the most expensive movie ever, <laughs> then that could be problematic for you. But there's at least the hope that someone will read the whole thing and be like, wow, this is like great writing. So I think you, you just have to go with whatever is going to be the best version. I thought when I first read the question that it was like, is the cost of the boat itself prohibitive? And I thought, well, no, I mean, a boat isn't necessarily going to be that expensive. But I realized this, Charles answered it. And this is why you should ask lots of different people and not just someone like me, because I'm more going to think of it from like, what is it going to, how is it going to impact the budget? But Charles started answering the question in terms of how's it going to impact the shoot, which then does impact the budget because, well, how hard is it going to be to get good footage on a boat? And I didn't even think about that. I just thought, well, how hard is it to rent a boat? Like, it's sure it's expensive, but it might not be, you might not break the bank. Um, but if you can't make your days because, you know, the choppy waters or whatever, I would also say, like, think about a movie like Knife on the Water, which was an early Roman Polanski movie. Um, not that I'm trying to support Roman Polanski these days, but it all is on a boat. It's great. The fact that it's on a boat is huge to what it is. And it just popped in my head because it's, you know, an early, it's kind of a roommate movie, but it's on a boat. And I think that if your movie needs to be there and that's what makes it great or unique, then that's what it has to be. Um, those are the hard decisions that a creative has to make. And it's easy to sit here and say like, well, you have to decide what's going to make your movie so good that a producer can't say no. Because that's, that's the thing that people say the most. I can't, I, it has to be so good that I can't say no. So they're not going to stop because of the cost of shooting on a boat, unless there's other concerns they have, if that makes sense. All right. So that is this week, Sound Week on the No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain. You can check out all of my work uh, at charleshain.com or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Enjoy Sound Week on nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Uh, listen to our other podcasts. I think I plugged like a billion of them already today. But make sure uh, to check in next week and in the following weeks because we're going to have all this end of year content. Um, we're wrapping up 2020. What a year. Um, and there's going to be a lot of reflection on, you know, this bizarre year in terms of our industry and in terms of filmmaking and all of that. And a lot of content coming from Charles, which is also very exciting. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 